You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Yin yoga is the sixth most popular style of yoga in the world right now, at least according to a survey by Do You Yoga. But it might also be one of the most misunderstood, according to my guest, who is a yin yoga teacher and teacher trainer. If you've never done yin, it consists of long-held postures with very little or no muscular effort, so it's often confused or combined with restorative yoga. Yin tends to inspire strong feelings, as in you either love it or you hate it. The level of patience and quiet required to practice yin is a pretty direct antidote to the go-consume-achieve culture that most of us are steeped in. And that by itself makes it a worthwhile discipline to explore, in my opinion. In today's conversation, my guest Nick Danu clears up some of the most common misunderstandings about yin yoga and shares advice for yoga teachers who are interested in teaching yin classes. We also talk about the roots of yin and how its philosophy differs from most other styles of yoga. And we even coin a more appropriate name for the practice that probably will not take off. Let's get started with the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Nick, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. I'm really excited to dive into everything yin today with you. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening for quite a while and a big fan of your podcast. Thank you. So have you always been a yin teacher or did you start out with a different type of yoga? Can you share a little bit about why you were attracted to yin, why you started teaching it? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a strange story, actually. I was a Hatha teacher before. Um, I still teach um, therapeutic yoga. I'm a yoga therapist now. So we're going back like 16 years here. So 16 years ago when I started teaching, um, my first teacher training was Iyengar-based, but um, not an Iyengar certification program, meaning all of the teachers that taught us were certified Iyengar teachers. So um, that was sort of my first 300-hour and I think I left that like a lot of new teachers do their first training, um, feeling sort of like I needed more anatomy knowledge. And so I had been in a bookstore back when we, you know, actually went to bookstores to get our books and DVDs and things and um, had seen a, a anatomy for yoga DVD and just thought, oh, OK, I need that. Like, that's what I need. So I grabbed it and I brought it home and I watched it and it was Paul Gurley's DVD. And it's blew my mind, not only because I realized that there were so many things in my own body that even my very senior Iyengar teachers could not explain to me. Like, why is it when you give me the direction to roll my leg in, it actually has the opposite effect of what you're saying it will feel like in my body? Or why am I always getting pinching in my hip in this one pose? And I just wasn't able to get any clear answers and the answers they would give, I knew for sure were not the answer because they'd get an answer like tight hips and I'd be like, come on, that's like my only flexible area. It's not tight hips. So 
I watched the DVD. It blew my mind. It changed the way I looked at my own body. And for those who haven't haven't watched it, um, his his premise is he talks about skeletal variations and about how even though if we look at an anatomy book, it looks like we all should look like that, or we look at the skeletons in our teacher training, but we don't. We all have different bones. And this was the first time I had heard this information. And so my mind was blown. It explains so much of my own body. And then I started looking at my students' bodies and going, oh, that could be, It's maybe they're not doing that because they don't understand what I'm saying, or maybe they just actually can't do that with their body. You know, So it really changed the way I looked at my body and everybody's body. And then about three years in to my teaching, so still for a fairly fledgling teacher, I went to a yoga studio to buy a yoga bolster. And I just happened to, and it's a studio I never went to, happened to walk by their cork board. And there was a picture of Paul Grilly's space on there saying he was doing a yin yoga workshop. I had no idea what yin yoga was. I'd never even heard of it. I just knew that's the guy from the anatomy DVD that blew my mind. So yes, I'm going to that workshop. So I went to a weekend workshop and my mind was blown again, because of course now I'm actually with teacher. We're learning all this and looking at bodies and then also doing a yin practice. And I remember during that practice thinking, I am going to be so sore tomorrow because I had never held anything for that long in sort of a floor-based way where I could just kind of sink into it. Yes. in Iyengar yoga, they do get you to hold things for a long time, but it's usually quite active, not like, just relax into this. And I just kept thinking, I'm going to be so sore. And then I wasn't. I felt for the first time a sense of spaciousness in my body that I had never felt before. And I felt a sense of spaciousness also in my mind and even in my nervous system. There was just this new feeling that I hadn't experienced before in yoga. And so I did that whole weekend workshop with him then I bought the DVD, his DVD and his book and all the things and just started practicing it in addition to my hatha, you know, two or three times a week. Or if I was on my moon cycle or if I wasn't feeling well, I would, you know, I would pull out a yin practice. And that went on for several years. And I really definitely fell in love with it. And occasionally I would share it with my students, but I really didn't know what I was doing enough to share it with my students. I would do it occasionally. Um, I would teach registered series. And if I had a class where I was sick, I would be like, okay, we're going to do this today. And so then several years later, I just happened to get a little bit of money from a family. It was unexpected. And I always try if I get those sort of unexpected gifts to think, okay, what could I do with this? That would be um, really honoring what a gift it is and do something that I maybe couldn't afford to do or wouldn't have done without. And so I signed up for my first of now 500 hours with Paul Grilly. I went off to California and, and dove deep. And so that's, uh, that's kind of my story of how I became a yin teacher. And I just kept going back. And I will, I mean, as soon as, as soon as we can travel freely again, I'll be going back again to study with him um, as well. So I've, I've done 500 with him now. And what started happening was I started having, um, teachers asked me if I would apprentice them in yin. And so that's kind of how I started teaching teachers in yin. So I started one-on-one um, -on -one apprenticeship before I started doing teacher trainings, which I'm doing now. So it sounds like the practice just really fit for your body. And there was this magic that a lot of us experience with different types of yoga at different points in our lives. So I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. So I know that 
yin is a pretty popular style of yoga, but I think it's also quite misunderstood. And as somebody who has been in the yin world for a long time and has kind of seen the blossoming of the yin, the popularity of yin, I'm curious what for you has been the things that really kind of drive you crazy where you're like, no, that's not right. That's not what yin is. You don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I would say the, there's a few. One of the things that you'll often hear from teachers is they'll say things like, oh, well, yin only really kind of became a thing, you know, like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, or, and that's not true. Um, so Paul Grilly, who's kind of often known as like the, the yin yoga guy, he's like the, I don't want to say the godfather of yin because that makes him sound like he's mafia or something, but um, he's, the, he's the guy who sort of codified it and, and made it popular. But his teacher, Polly Zink, was actually teaching these long-held floor-based postures before that, and his roots are actually in martial arts and in Qigong. So that's one thing that I would say, is that a lot of people think that Paul just took a bunch of Hatha poses and made you hold them a long time and then TM'd a new name. And it's not quite that simple. So that's one. So can I ask a follow-up question about that? Yeah. Because this is really interesting to me, especially within the conversation around cultural appropriation. So if, what I'm curious about is, was Polly calling this yoga or was Polly saying, hey, I'm going to teach you some stretching that's based in martial arts? Like, when did it start yeah. being called yoga? From what I understand, and I haven't spoken to Polly myself about this, so this is just, you know, through, through ear to ear to ear telephone game, so who knows? From what I understand, uh, he used to call what he taught Taoist yoga. Um, and when my teacher, Paul would go study with him, the, the long held stretching was always done before sort of the martial arts lesson. And he would do that part and then he would leave. He wouldn't stay for the whole thing. That's my understanding. I do think that, um, sometimes I think that using the word yoga connected to this is unfortunate because as soon as we hear the word yoga, we think of the classical Indian tradition. But I also think on the other hand, like what else would you call it? Because it's not, it's definitely not Qigong. It's definitely not martial arts. Um, and I think that it's interesting when you look back at really, really old um, yoga postures, and then you look back at actually really old sort of Qigong stuff, they're actually doing a lot of the same thing. Um, and so, as much as I, I've thought that myself, it's like, well, should I be using the word yoga for this? It's like, well, if I don't, what do I call it? Yin stretch, yin not quite qigong. Yin, you know what I mean? Like there's just this weird gray area. Um, hopefully, you know, maybe someday there'll be a better answer for, for that. But yes, I agree. It is, it is kind of a hard, it's kind of a hard thing to, to wrap my head around as far as like what I would do with it as well. Um, I will say, though, that Paul himself was a long time Hatha yogi, long before he even started practicing yin. So when you go to do his trainings, he still teaches about Patanjali. He's talking about the chakras. Like, so he, he definitely has this yin component, and he does briefly guide through the meridians and stuff, although not that in depth. Um, but, you know, he's definitely, you know, he was reared in Hatha yoga and, uh, and definitely still 
still has that as a practice as well as his, his martial arts and his yin practice. So I think there's more overlap as far as the asanas go than what we would actually think. Of course, um, you know, philosophically, there's probably differences in history and different countries and all of that. But I think as far as the actual asanas go, which is what most people think yoga is, um, I think that's why the, the name works well, because fortunately or unfortunately, most people, when they hear the word yoga, think of the physical postures. So we as teachers know there's more, but when you say to the average person on the street, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm an asana teacher. Cause they'd look at you like, what are you talking about? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I think it's a really interesting conversation because there has definitely been cross pollination across different traditions in the East. And, you know, so all of these different ways of thinking, these different systems for organizing the world have influenced each other. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that it's such a sad thing that the history of colonialism has led to this point where there's so much pain and so much um, trauma, really, that that there is this sense of needing to keep them separate rather than saying, hey, you know what, we've always cross-pollinated and that's gonna keep happening. <laughs> and I think that, you know, there's so many different ways to look at it and, and different ways to think about it. But I was just curious about that because that is something I think a lot of people probably actually don't know either. Um, if you just say, oh, yin yoga, they don't even know enough to be like, wait a second, yin is from East Asia and yoga is from South Asia. So how are you combining the two, <laughs> you know? Totally. Like most, most people don't have that, that sense. So they would maybe walk into a yin yoga class expecting more of a classical yoga philosophy and then might or might not be surprised by the the Taoist influence. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that uh, people misunderstand often about yin, so whether they're a teacher, and this happens all the time with teachers, I, I can't count how many times I, when you said it makes me just want to, uh, um, how many times I've had teachers when I've been at a studio come up to me and say, hey, if you ever need a sub for your yin class, let me know. And then I say, oh, yeah, I'll consider it. Like, what, tell me about your yin training. And the dead air like no yin training. And I'm like, so, okay. So you don't have any yin training. And then, and then I've actually heard them say, yeah, but I mean, it's just like regular yoga, but you hold it longer. And that's where I really struggle to contain myself because nothing could be further from the truth. Um, There is an art and a science to leading a quieter form of yoga that is not the same as you cannot be a vinyasa teacher and just roll all of that theory and what you do in your vinyasa class right into a yin class and expect it to be a good class. Um, so, so break it down for us. Tell us exactly what is the major differences and why it's so important to get training to teach yin. Yeah, yeah, I've got some for you here. So one thing I would mention is that, and this, and I think this will kind of illustrate my point, is that it, I've done kundalini yoga over the years, I've got some DVDs, I've got some books, I've done some workshops. Now, if I were to just show up at a studio and be like, oh yeah, I can totally teach that Kundalini class. Most people would go, um, no, 
Or same thing with Ashtanga. And I'm talking the system of Batavi Joyce, not the philosophical eight limbs, just to be clear. If I were to roll up into an Ashtanga studio, although I've taken some classes and all of that stuff um, and say, oh yeah, I can totally teach this. I mean, people would think that that's kind of arrogant probably. And it's the same, in my opinion, with yin, just because, you know, you think it's the same as hatha, but longer holds, it's not the same. So here's some snapshots as to what might make it different. The intention of your, of your class. So the, whether you choose to use music or not, I'm not even going to debate that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a never ending debate. But if you did, you would want to keep the, in mind the tempo of the class and then the tempo of the music. Um, you'd also, I think, want to keep in mind that yin is a quiet practice. So if you're using music, I tend to say um, avoid something with obvious lyrics, anything somebody could sing along to, anything that's going to pull them out of their practice and out of their body, um, because a yin practice is all about diving in. It's all about introception and coming inward. Um, so props, a lot of times people will see um, a yin practice done with props. And as soon as they see a yoga bolster come out, they think it's a restorative class, not the case. So the intention of using a prop is to get more comfortable in yin. And you can do yin without props, certain poses, certain bodies, and some cannot be done without props, um, certain poses and certain bodies. So some, what one person might be able to do prop free, somebody else is gonna need props for. And that's depends on the individual body, not a style of yoga. And I think that really speaks to a pattern that I see with newer teachers or maybe teachers who had a certain type of training where they get exposed to a student. Let's say they have a student come to class or a private and they simply cannot do what they were trained to believe as a basic pose. So let's say downward facing dog or a sun salutation. And there are so many people who absolutely cannot and should not be doing any of those poses. And the teacher starts kind of internally freaking out like, well, I don't know what to do if this is too hard for you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I swear think, that prop, prop training really should be like way more of a focus, I think. Yeah. Well, even just regressing because every single joint position can be regressed to a place where it's accessible for somebody. And totally. if you just figure that out, if that was just laid out in teacher training in a place where it was given enough importance that people actually absorbed it, I think it would solve so many of these newer teachers going into classes and thinking, yeah, I'm trained. Yeah, I'm trained. And then the first time that they get somebody in their class who doesn't have the same physical abilities as they were expecting, you know, they just kind of freak out and feel like they can't serve that person, but all they need is a little bit of training. Especially I think um, if they come from a naturally um, strong and flexible body themselves, then they've never even experienced it. And if all of their practice teaching was on other teacher trainees who also have flexible, able bodies, it's like, well, of course. I was the one, uh, there was maybe three of us, but there was three of us in my teacher training who were like the non-flexible, non-yogi types. And I remember my teacher, my first teacher training saying over and over to us that like, I know you don't think this is a gift, but this is a gift. The fact that you have to struggle in these poses and figure out your props. And she's like, 
this is going to be so good for your teaching. And I think at the time I rolled my eyes and thought of oh, whatever, she's trying to just make us feel better. But it, but she was right. Because of course, then you go out and teach the average human and it's like, oh, oh, this is, this is totally different than teaching a bunch of yogis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's why when I teach teacher trainings, especially if it's a 200 hour training in those practicums, I'm always telling the pretend students don't fill in the gaps for them. Like if what they're saying doesn't make sense, don't like just go into the pose and fill in the gaps because you're not giving them the information that their instructions aren't clear, you know? So that's kind of the same thing. Like if you're just teaching fellow trainees who've been through the exact same training as you, then it's an artificial environment and you need to get some more clarity about what it's like to, to teach real bodies and real people. Okay, so we talked about intention. We talked about props. What's next? Um, quiet. Mm. And this is one that's really hard for teachers. And it was even hard for me as a teacher. And I've been teaching a long time. When you first start teaching a still practice, where someone comes into the pose, you've guided them in, you've given them prop options. Now they're just there. They're settled in. The tendency is for a teacher who doesn't have in training or someone who's used to more active styles is to talk incessantly because you're used to saying, put your right foot here, put your hand here, do this, inhale, move here. And so it's like, all of a sudden there's this open space where teachers are like, so now what do I do? Um, And so then the art of holding space is the skill that we develop because there isn't much for you to do. And you shouldn't be rambling on incessantly because the whole point is for them to be able to drop in um, and that's really hard to do if a teacher is distracting you the whole time. So being able to be quiet and just hold brave space, that's a skill that needs to be developed um, in order to teach a quieter practice. Um, breath is different. So in active forms of yoga, um, like vinyasa, for example, you might do ujjayi pranayama, or you might do other breaths where you're you're trying to actually kind of bring the energy up and out. In a yin practice, we're actually doing the opposite. We're trying to stay embodied. We're trying to keep the breath down low, sort of, I don't wanna say belly breathing because we all know that you don't actually breathe from your belly, but that sort of awareness for your students because students often think it's belly breathing um, where you're bringing the awareness low and you're keeping the breath deep and sort of in what they call the, the lower dantian. So in the lower aspect of the body, philosophically, there's just some differences between like a Taoist viewpoint and an Indian viewpoint. And in Taoism, they're actually not trying to transcend their body. Um, they're trying to improve their health and their longevity. And it's more of a nature based tradition. So they're taking their inspiration from the earth and the water, and they're trying to actually if anything, increase their life and preserve their essence. Um, They call it in Chinese medicine. So that's a different thing. Um, And that can be tricky when you're a new teacher to help them to understand the students to understand that just how they're breathing is fine. Like that to not coach the breathing so much, just let them breathe. And also it's, it's tricky when you have a student and they're used to doing maybe ujjayi or something, and they just are automatically doing that at a yin class. And it takes a certain amount of kind of skill and coaching to get students to understand that like, you're just gonna be here. Like, how would you be breathing if you were sleeping right now? Let's just do that. You know, just let your breath be deep and fluid and natural. 
you've used the word deep a few times in relationship to breathing. And my understanding is that as the nervous system settles, our breath actually naturally becomes more shallow. So if we are not controlling our breath, it's likely to be shallow. And that's something that I feel like I have had to discuss, like address directly with my students because so many yoga teachers coach a deep breath and, and kind of hold that up as being this holy grail. Like if you're breathing deeply, then you're doing it right. And so to, to actually say, hey, guess what? If your breath goes shallow, no problem. That's normal. That's a sign that you're relaxing. Yeah, what I do is I usually coach students to deepen their breath intentionally at first in the beginning of class, just so that they're actually aware of the fact that the breath can exist in many places in their body. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. That's the last breath, breath coaching that I give. Then I just let people breathe. If I hear that they're intentionally trying to do the, you know, it's not even Ujjayi. You know how the, sometimes Ujjayi gets misinterpreted and everyone sounds like Darth Vader. If I hear that happening, then I'm going to talk more about the breath. And I'm going to say, you know, we're not actually trying to hear our breath in this practice. We're just trying to feel it anywhere in the body. In yin, I often will guide people also into breathing into areas of sensation um, and more experienced yin practitioners that they actually know where the meridians or the sinew channels are might use that visualization with their breath. That's not a beginner level thing though. Um, but yeah, usually I just get them to get aware of the fact that they actually have a big expansive ability with their breath. And then, and a few sighs out the mouth seems to just calm people a little bit. And then I just stop talking about breath unless something comes up where it's like they're doing Ujjayi or they're kind of, you know, doing some, one of those more stimulating breaths, then I'll just reiterate and coach them to just, just stop thinking about your breath, just breathe. Your body knows how to do that all by itself. You do not have to remember. Well, I think especially if you've coached a little bit of full body breathing, full breathing awareness in the beginning, that really sets the tone and starts to spark that awareness so that they can then pay attention to their breath without needing to do a lot with it. Yeah. And I literally say at the end of the big breaths and say, now just fall into whatever your natural breath rhythm is, like whatever it is, just yeah, you don't need to worry about it. So I would say that sort of understanding that the ener- that the energetics are different, that the breath is is different, the philosophy is a little different. Um, also, the other thing that we're not doing in a yin practice is, and I'm going to do air quotes here. I know that listeners won't see them, but is alignment. We're not doing any sort of like alignment in our in our practice. So. What the pose looks like in yin is irrelevant. It's what does the pose feel like? And if the student is feeling the sensation in the intended area, which we as yin teachers would tell them this, I'm doing this for your hip butt IT band zone. If you're feeling that sensation there and you're not feeling any pain, bingo, you're done. It doesn't know um, sort of alignment policing in yin. Now, obviously, if somebody is in pain, they're not doing that pose or I'm giving them something else or I'm giving them a prop to support them. Um, but otherwise, if they're feeling sensation in the area that, that they're in, great. They, they win. That's it. Um, the other thing that can happen sometimes in yin, especially with people that are very flexible, is they don't feel sensation in the poses because they've kind of reached 
where their bone structure is going to allow them to go. And at that point, um, I usually just support their body so that they can relax and they're going to get some of the other benefits of yin. So they're going to get that introception. There's always something to notice, even if it's not sensation, like you might notice the weight of your body on the earth, the sounds around you, you know, the feeling of chi in your body. So at that point, when somebody is open enough in their body that just don't feel opposed, then I can guide them to some of the more subtle aspects of the practice. Um, because I think sometimes we have this mistaken impression in yoga that like you're always supposed to feel a stretch forever and ever and ever, no matter how long you've been doing yoga. And that is a recipe for disaster because that's not the case. There's going to be a point where you've just reached what your bone structure will do. And now you're in maintenance mode and you just get to enjoy yourself and find a different aspect of the practice to bring your awareness to. So um, basically, as long as they're not in pain and they're supported and they can be comfortable and sink in, that's all we focus on. It's a very um, sort of emotional um, versus aesthetic approach, meaning we're not, I don't care what they look like in their forward fold, as long as they're happy and content there and they can work with the amount of sensation that they have and they're not in pain, then we're good. That's all that matters. So thinking about back to our discussion earlier about like, what else would we call it? And I'm laughing here because of course there's this tension between accuracy and marketing all the time. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. So what came to me was it, we could call it embodied Taoist meditation because it's this form Ooh. of going inward but being embodied at the same time. But how many people are going to sign up for an embodied Taoist meditation class versus a yin yoga class? Now I would personally, only, but <laughs> I was going to say only the Taoist, the Taoist and the Taoist curious would. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think even just people who love meditation in general would, yeah. because it'd be like, Ooh, it another form of meditation. <laughs> It would definitely be a much smaller percentage of the population for sure. I think you're right. I, I, you know, this is like the one real internal struggle I have with marketing is when we have to use terms that are less accurate just uh -huh. because they're going to attract more people. And I feel that I feel internal conflict about that because I do too. I'm just I'm, I'm gray area girl. I'm like, give me all the details. I want to know the yes. whole picture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I'm all but about the gray. Yeah. 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 Is there anything else that you want to share about yin yoga? Anything that you wish yoga teachers really knew about yin yoga before we wrap up? Well, I would say, first of all, if you're curious about yin, start practicing it with a qualified teacher, just put that in brackets. Because I have heard, of course, all kinds of things being called yin where I'm like, what, what? That's like not even close. So find a qualified teacher if you're interested in it, start studying it. If you've been practicing in and you really love it and you do feel like this is something I feel passionately about offering my students, then seek out a yin, a yin teacher training. Um, and don't be afraid to do your research. So for example, um, in addition to my yin training, I'm also a yoga therapist, so I have that additional 800 hours, and that definitely influences my yin training. I definitely teach what I would call therapeutic yin. And then on top of that, I then wasn't you know, satisfied enough because I'm just a bit of a nerd. And so I went to Chinese medicine school for three years. And so I actually did get to dive into learning about 
the meridians and the sinew channels and the elements and all of that as well. And so now all of that is in my training and that's not always the case. So I would say just like any teacher training, if you do want to take a yin training, um, you know, really just do your research on the, on the teacher, check out their, their training, their background, who they've studied with, their credentialing and, uh, and take a training. So if it's something that you feel passionately that you love, then that would be, I think, the next logical step. And if you just kind of like yin, but you're not sure yet, then you're still in the let's practice it and not teach it yet mode. Um, because I think, as I say on my website, if you've got a crush on yin and you're ready to take your commitment to the next level, that's when teacher training, when you're like, ooh, I think maybe I might want to be exclusive or at least consider that, you know, then time for teacher training. And if you're not there yet, then time for practice. Awesome. And if listeners want to find out more about your training or connect with you, where should they look? So my website is nickdanu.com. And I have two branches. So one goes to students, one goes to teachers. So I know that your, your people are teachers. So then they could click teachers or they could just add a backslash teachers. So danu.com slash teachers. want to find that. And then they'll find um, two more buttons. One that says business mentorship, one that says yin teacher training. And then, and with my teacher trainings, I don't do like an early registration discount. I just do that if they're on my email list. So if somebody does check me out and they resonate, join the email list. It's the only way to get the, the first um, discount for teacher trainings and to find out first when they go live before I post them anywhere else. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of this info and for nerding out about yin a little bit with me and breath and all of all of the different things i really appreciate it oh thank you for having me one of my favorite things about asana is how many different approaches there are while some styles can be dogmatic about being the best or the most effective way to practice Zooming out, it's easy to see that different techniques are going to be helpful for different people and in different situations. As I mentioned in the intro, I really appreciate yin for its combination between this quiet interception that still invites us into our bodies because we need that so much. It's this perfect antidote to the go, do, achieve culture that we live in. I don't think we covered this in the conversation per se, but the term yin is not a fixed definition. It's a description that only exists in relationship to its opposite, which is yang. So a yin practice is the quiet, soft, heavy practice that complements an active, dynamic, effortful practice, or maybe even other activities that fit that description, such as weightlifting or cycling or running. What this means is that some of the exact same poses or practices will be yin for one person and yang for another person, or even yin during one period of your life and yang during another. Nick did mention during the conversation that yin refers to a Taoist philosophy instead of the philosophies derived from Samkhya, which is the parent philosophy of both yoga and Ayurveda. The concepts of yin and yang have some overlap with the framework of the gunas from Samkhya, where yin is more associated with tamas and yang is more associated with rajas. 
The big difference between the frameworks is that Samkhya includes a third element of sattva. I think it's important if you want to teach yin and you also want to teach other styles of yoga to study both of these philosophies so that you really fully understand the differences and the similarities. I think it would be a mistake to directly associate and translate yin as tamas and yang as rajas. That's the kind of nuance you want to be able to understand and describe if you choose to become a yin teacher. And while you should definitely take a yin training, if you want to teach classes called yin, you don't necessarily need to take a yin training in order to incorporate elements inspired by the yin practice into your classes because they aren't actually exclusive to yin. They're just currently associated with yin. The more active vinyasa style of yoga, for example, is a relatively new approach to the practice, and the quiet, introspective approach you find in yin is in some ways more traditional. But as Nick mentioned, whatever you decide to call your classes, the most important thing is to practice what you teach. So start by incorporating more elements of yin into your home practice if you feel inspired, And if that leads you to take a training that focuses exclusively on these quiet practices, then that's awesome. But don't expect that a training is going to replace the work that you do on your mat, because that's where the deeper embodied knowing comes from. I know that it is so tempting to look outside of yourself for the answers. I totally do it all the time. But whenever I come back to a willingness to listen and to trust what I already know, what my body is telling me, what my intuition puts together, that's where I find the ability to really make a difference for my students. That's all for this week. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.